Maybe they can edit out the first couple minutes. I'm going to try to put the sign on the back of the door. Well, good thing I couldn't hear. It's definitely, yeah, I really don't want to think. It's like, it's real
Hi, everybody. Welcome uh, to the fourth and penultimate event in this quarter's um, new writing series. Thanks to the Dean's Office of Art and Humanities for their support of our series. Um, please turn your, you know, beepers down. And, um, <laughs> and please draw beautiful pictures on the, on the chalkboard. Um, the... Uh, what we're doing today is we've got two readers, uh, as you probably already knew, um, where you have two introducers, uh, Hannah Tawater and Ben Siegel. Um, they are, uh, you don't need to look at me very much longer. So uh, when, when Laird gets done, um, Ben, you're going to start. And then Laird's going to go. Then Hannah. Then Eleni. Um, I'll remind you that March 13th, we have another really exciting reading. Kate Greenstreet and Cynthia Aru King are going to be here. It's going to be in this room as well uh, with our special um, vintage De Certeau PA system uh, that, that seems to stem from that same era. So, uh, Ben, can you do this? This is, I'm not as tall as you. I might just... Let me show you what happens. So, so everybody knows. Yeah. 
This thing is like 60 years old, so. Right. You know. um, I can get a stool. Uh, it's unit. <laughs> I can just talk in there, and I can I can project. It's unidirectional. Listen. Hey. All it right. catches it from the side, so you might uh, want. Okay. <laughs> It doesn't bend down. That's the problem is it flops. It has no... Um, it it's not very good at being a microphone. Um, all right. So um, it's like a truism that when you do introductions, they're really about you, um, and then you pretend you're doing it about the other person. So I'm going to try to reverse that and do it so it seems like it's about me at first, but then ends up being more about the other person. Um, so, okay. Um, but first, um, the brief bio, or the second... Um, uh, Laird Hunt has written several books, including the novels The Impossibly, The Ray of the Star, Indiana, Indiana, The Exquisite, uh, and the story collection of Parastories, and most recently, uh, The Kind One. He earned his MFA at Naropa, and he currently teaches at the University of Denver. Um, his typical bio goes on to mention his many other accolades uh, and the fact that he published a lot of great things in a lot of great places and continues to. Um, but I'm going to use this opportunity to read to you a short text that he wrote for uh, this anthology that I did called The Official Catalog of the Library of Financial Literature. Uh, and this is going to seem self-serving, but I want to read it for a reason, um, because the point of the anthology was to ask writers who I really admire to imagine an ideal, um, desired, non-existent text. And I think that tells a lot about one's own like literary aesthetics by the text that they w want to exist in the world. So I'm going to read this, this short like blurb that he wishes for someone to have on the back of a book that doesn't exist. Um, so, okay, and this is flopping around. Um, um, like, is it? Yeah, um, okay. Um, so, uh, he, his, his is for a, a book called Obo Frappo by a, a writer named X. Um, so, in X's stunning new novel, Obo Frappo, the late great Georges Perec, does not die of lung cancer in 1983, but rather, tired of life in Paris and the literary hurly-burly in general, fakes his own death and moves to the South, where he uses the proceeds of a generous, generous life insurance policy to open a school for French kickboxing, La Boxe Française. Excuse my French, it's um, poor. Um, long a secret admirer of his peculiar French uh, martial art, quietly immortalized in Francois Truffaut's José Jim, Perec uh, takes to his uh, new role with anachronistic gusto. He wears tights, lace-up boots, and a sailor's jersey. He hops about the gymnasium, barking out commands, correcting posture and offering measured, if eccentric, quote, excellent thumb location, end quote, praise. At night, he works on adapting various Olympian constraints for the ring and the practice mat. It is in the introduction of dizzyingly complex practice forms, some of which have upward of 5,000 moves and postures, that Perec's method distinguishes itself. Over the years, a series of guest instructors are invited to share their technique with the ever-swelling membership of the Ouvoir de Boxe Francais Potentiel Obo Frappo. Uh, readers are met with past and current. Uh, readers familiar with past and current Olympians will, will be delighted to recognize, among others, Jacques Roubaud, Master Jacques, and Harry Matthews, Master Harry, who collaboratively teach a series of high kicks based on the Sistina, the Canina, and in honor of the founder, the Perakina. Perakina. Um, uh, that the novel involves an attempt by local gangsters to horn in on the school's substantial proceeds is a nifty bonus. Equal parts Ulipo Compendium and Enter the Dragon, Obo Frappo is not to be missed. Um, so that's the blurb, and it's really funny and better than what I'm doing. But um, it encompasses a lot of what I really admire about your work. Um, and um, it, because cause Laird Hunt is equally at home in the tradition of avant-garde French writers as he is in the tradition of Bruce Lee. Um, and incidentally, the internet tells me he has a black belt of his own, which, um, so he, he kind of can talk both those languages really uh, legitimately. Um, 
And like a lot of people make a lot of, of noise about um, about mixing of high genre and low genre and like high art and low art and um, and a lot of times that's just like what ends up happening is it's like a bad muddling of both. They're like you can't really recommend the book to your friends who like high art stuff because it's too genre y and you can't recommend it to your genre friends because it's like too weird and high arty. Um, but he um, somehow manages to make books that I feel com- comfortable recommending to people like just because they're really propulsive interesting stories and also the language is totally captivating and the the thoughts are really interesting to work with and like um uh so uh yeah (laughs) he's neither afraid of difficulty nor the pleasure of narrative movement making his fiction idiosyncratic in the best way um and then i this is probably dumb to part put in but i wanted to mention that where he teaches is um the university of denver and their their sports teams are called the pioneers and so i thought um, and they're, they're pretty good this year. Their basketball team, their men's team. They if they if they get past Louisiana Tech, put them in like the second round of your bracket because I think they have they're pretty good. Um, so, but the pioneers. Um, I thought this was like a great word to talk about, like what I think about his fiction doing, or like what, what as a writer what he's doing. He's he's kind of like like moving. It's always about moving into these new territories and 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 making a new space for like exciting growth and building and exploration and things like that. Um, so I probably overstayed my welcoming welcome. Um, but I, I want to close by reading a blurb about his book, uh, The Impossible, that sums up his work better than, better than anything I could have said. This is from Time Out New York. It said, um, Innovative, comic, bizarre, and beautiful, The Impossible reads as if Donald Barthelmey were channeling Alain Robgrier, Samuel Beckett, ben, ben Marcus, and reruns of Get Smart. So that's, that sounds awesome. Um, so please welcome Laird Hunt. Sorry about this thing. That's all right. I'm sure you feel like Thank you very much for that intro, um, and thank you for getting me off the hook uh, about being funny, because I'm not going to be terribly funny, but you can see that I can be sometimes funny um, from that introduction, or maybe. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for the, uh, for the invite, um, uh, and uh, thanks to you all for coming out today. So I'm going to read a couple of things. Uh, the first is brief, and it's sort of self-serving. Um, and sort of not, uh, this this book, which is called Brando, My Solitude, just came out about two days ago. It just came into existence. I don't know if it's officially out or not. Um, it's a translation I did with, with uh, Anne-Laure Tissou of a novel by, um, well, it's not quite a novel. It's, um, it's subtitled A Biographical Hypothesis by the young writer Arnaud Bertina, French writer, so it's translated from the French. Uh, and... Um, I'm going to read just a couple of pages, just because I'm excited that this thing exists now. Um, It's his first book in English. So Brando, My Solitude. He's born 1910, has an older brother, will later have a younger brother and sister. His father is then a tax collector in a small town where he started out as the ministry's representative, as sub-prefect. His mother had caused a scandal by riding a bicycle. She was 14 and I have a hard time imagining what those shocked people were thinking because I keep returning to the bike. It was the gesture they found shocking, the idea that a woman should move, assert her body rather than tightly hold it all in a bodice, hide her teenage legs in the narrow shaft of a dress. So there was some scandal. The the convent's mother superior wanted to judge for herself. The girl complied willingly. She was called Elizabeth. She knew the mother superior and had all the trustfulness of the child whose world has not yet been crushed. She took a ride around the inside of the cloister, and the mother superior, who was good-natured, raised her eyebrows and sighed, 
Only a foul mind would find this unseemly. Doesn't this town have anything better to do? Anyway, that's the start of this book, which I'm really excited about. Um, and Arno's going to be in, um, in the States over the next couple of weeks doing events. We're going to do something in San Francisco next week, and he's going to, coming to Denver. Uh, I didn't know um, that the Pioneers had a good basketball team this year, so it's really nice to know that. I used to play a little basketball, but I'm clearly out of touch. No high kicks. <laughs> I got a good luck kiss. Um, so this is just going to be playing ambiently. Uh, so I'm going to read to you from a story. I've been writing a series of, of, of story-esque things, um, somewhat fictional, somewhat autobiographical, autobiographical, and they vary from piece to piece in terms of the percentage that's fictional, the percentage that's autobiographical. Uh, and the manuscript has a visual element, and so this is meant to speak to that. So they're just going to be spooling through as I read. And this is called Giraffe Story, which is extra um, nice because we went to the zoo today and saw the giraffes um, capering about. In early November of 2010, Eleni, Eva, and I traveled by high-speed train from Paris to London. The trip over was uneventful. A very tall woman in a suit gave up her seat so that the three of us could sit together. When Eva grew bored, we took walks in the aisle and played games in the dining car. It was night outside, so there was nothing to see. The train ran late. I was trying to write a story involving giraffes at the time. For part of the trip, Eva looked at her portable DVD player. I kept having warm feelings about giraffes. Our friend Chiaki met us in St. Pancras Station, and we took a taxi to Islington, where we had a place to stay. The flat was small and cold, and the next few days were rainy. The flat belonged to the poet Fiona Templeton, and we had a very small bathroom with a tub you got into by clambering over the toilet. We very quickly broke the fragile light string and had to use a flashlight to see when we made our ablutions. There was a carpet on the floor of the apartment. The kitchen was narrow. It all felt very familiar. I had lived in London twice as a boy and took considerable pleasure in the waves of nostalgia that kept sweeping, as they say, over me. For example, when I would pass a low, dark brick wall with rain dripping on it, or when I would see a packet of round tree fruit pastilles for sale in the underground. Black currant had been my favorite variety of pastille. We had had vague thoughts, had had vague thoughts of taking Eva to the London Zoo, where I had gone often in my childhood and where perhaps I could see and photograph a live giraffe but the rain put paid to that. I'd especially loved entering the giant net of the aviary at the zoo. This would have been in 1974 or 75, entering that huge space full of birds that couldn't fly too far away from me. I went to St. Christina's Montessori School as a small boy and lived in St. John's Wood. Later I went to the American School of London and later still, on another occasion, went again to the American School of London and lived in South Kensington. There are not great quantities of sunshine associated with the memories I have of these periods, though I do recall playing in mossy gardens and pitching in baseball games in Regent's Park. I had a girlfriend named Wendy and did some sloppy kissing. Wendy soon told me that her mother had said we must break up. I was in the Boy Scouts. I had a friend named Benny. Once some of my other friends went boating and got very wet together to their great 12-year-old glee, but I was not, alas, with them that day. We liked Paris a great deal that fall in London, suffered a bit for it. The houses looked small and socked in, 
like children set to carry heavy loads in some novel that should have long since been laid to rest. The streets were, were narrow but not curving. The shop windows were not elegant. We were not interested at that moment in being down with general drear and shop window shabbiness. We enjoyed reading in the William IV on Shepherdess Walk, though. It was an old pub. A festive group had gathered. Eva helped us give our readings for a while, then retreated to her DVDs at the back of the room. <laughs> this did not seem to us to be a failure in parenting, as we had readings to get on with, professional obligation and so forth. Eva watched a Miyazaki video, or perhaps it was Felix the Cat. We did not drink beer. Heavy glasses of excellent dark red wine were put into our hands. One of the people who had attended the reading went down to get his friend's drinks, and in his drunkenness dropped a whole tray full of beverages onto the floor. One of our dearest old friends was in the room. Eva and I went outside afterward and took photos of each other. I became momentarily annoyed when she bonked my camera into a bench she was climbing. The camera, an Olympus Pen EPL-1, was okay. Eva apologized for bonking it, and I accepted her apology, even though when you are five and it is late in the evening in London and your father lets you hang an expensive camera around your neck while both of you are running back and forth across the quiet street, nothing in the situation is your fault. I suspect my own father, who used to take my sister and me on weekend outings around London and in the surrounding countryside in the distant 1970s, would have seen it the same way. My father was a branch manager for a large bank in those days. He vanished off into his world in the morning and reappeared in the evening. This was around the heyday of the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. I am trying now to understand why my sister and I, five and seven at the time, listened often enough to an LP of the production to have it memorized. Christ, I know you can't hear me, but I only did what you wanted me to. This was the period of my father's great interest in the guitar. He played it often in the evening and took lessons from a young man who would come to the house. Of course, my father was a young man then, too. He played the guitar to us at night before bedtime. He sang stories to us. I wish I had a recording of one of them and of the soft little beats of our breaths in the background, but I do not. The world does not offer itself to us this way, not often at any rate. I suspect I was happy when my father was playing to us before bedtime. Insofar as happiness, insofar as happy encompasses all the emotions when we are very young, rage, fear, madness, delight. There we go lying alone in our bodies in the dark. Then the next day we went to the British Museum, or had we already gone there? Regardless, I took Eva to see Ginger, who died and was buried in Egyptian sand 3,500 years ago, as my mother, on one of her good days, had taken me and my sister to see Ginger soon after he was brought to the museum. I had forgotten that Ginger, so nicknamed because of the ginger patch of hair that remains on his head, is a desiccated corpse curled up in his ancient skin, and that some of Ginger's inner organs seem to protrude from between his legs. I had forgotten, I suppose I mean, that Ginger is frightening, that Ginger lies surrounded by funereal pots that signify, as Ginger himself does, the terrifyingly old, the vanished, the crumbled, whole ecosystems of dreaming, dreaming grown to ruin. Eva expressed her desire to me soon after we saw Ginger that I not die. I won't, I said to her. Not yet. I promise. We did not show her the strangely beautiful crushed warrior and princess heads that were close to Ginger's case, crushed by the weight of the earth caving in on their burial sites. Instead, we took her down to see the Elgin marbles, where she sat in the gray-blue light sketching long past the ordinary confines of her attention span.
One afternoon during the trip, I went with Andrew, a former student and now a friend, to visit the Soans Museum, which houses a collection of second and third tier antiquities that gradually, as you drift past them, accumulate into something extraordinary. Room after strange, unsettling room is lined with stone remnants or plaster representations of Greek and Roman objects. A sarcophagus sits in state in one of the basement rooms, and everywhere candles shimmer on snapped-off columns and crumbling corinths. There are other things, too, at the Soans Museum, more recent paintings and clocks and carpets. But it is of all the gray bits hanging on the walls that I think now when I shut my eyes. Afterwards, Andrew and I walked through Lincoln's Inn and made our way to one of Andrew's, Andrew's old beverage haunts from his days as a literary fiction editor, where we sat in a dark booth and drank each other's health and spoke, if I remember correctly, about reading apps that stood a good chance of bringing the much maligned novella too long to stand in easy, easy company with other pieces, too short, absent a brand name author behind them to stand alone back into the public eye. People kill giraffes. Despite the fact that they are even-toed ungulate mammals, the tallest of all land-living animal species and the largest ruminants. The giraffe's scientific name, which is similar to its antiquated English name of camelopard, refers to its irregular... Do we lose did something happen? Yeah. Is it back? It is. It's back. I wonder what might have happened. Ever realized I needed a drink break? <laughs> Thanks, kiddo. The giraffe's scientific name, which is similar to its antiquated English name of camelopard, refers to its irregular patches of color on a light background, which bear a token resemblance to leopard spots. The average mass for an adult male giraffe is 1,200 kilograms, 2,600 pounds, while the average mass for an adult female is 830 kilograms, 1,800 pounds. It is approximately 4.3 meters, 14 feet to 5.2 meters, 17 feet tall, although the tallest male recorded stood almost 6 meters or 20 feet says accurately or inaccurately Wikipedia, where I spend more time these days than I do in my once much-thumbed Columbia Encyclopedia, so heavy and handsome in its 1945 single-volume edition. I bought it during the period when I was just setting out to see as a writer, during which I couldn't resist the reassuring solidity of old volumes that had withstood the various grudges of time. I still have many a modern library hardcover, red and blue, gray and green, sitting on my shelves in the basement. The Columbia Encyclopedia, for its part, is upstairs in the back room, but it's lying on its side, spine in or out, and I know that it's buried. Also, I know that um, just before we left, our two cats, one of them at least, had taken to scratching on the side of the Columbia Encyclopedia, so it's starting to crumble and fall to the floor entirely. Zarafa, the king's giraffe, who lived for many years in the Jardin des Plantes in Paris, and who has stood stuffed for many more years now in a museum in La Rochelle, which Eleni once visited, was never buried, does not now lie in some hidden giraffe cemetery on the savannah, nothing but hyena-scraped bones, or the dust of bones scattered hither and thither. Zarafa died and was stuffed a long time ago. Taxidermy is a tricky business. The idea is to make the thing look dead and alive simultaneously. Unlike the human dead pumped full of chemicals and set briefly or not briefly on display, the animal dead are set by the skillful taxidermist to stand and roar, crouch and whisper, spring and fly, eyes open forever. 
One doesn't look at the stuffed young lioness at Desrolles, the venerable Parisian taxidermist, and say, oh, she looks like she could be asleep. One wouldn't have said anything like this about Ginger, either, nor about the mummies in the next room or the warriors and princesses with their crushed heads. Despite all this, in the evenings, after he had finished teaching, our friend Tim would come to Fiona's flat and have dinner with us. We talked about poetry in the shit state of British papers and the beautiful dreariness of London. This was the period when the Chilean miners were still trapped deep underground, and though we had little to say on the subject, it came up in our gestures and glances. I don't think I brought uh, I don't think I brought up giraffes, but I might have. We ate takeout fish and chips and takeout Indian food. Tim and Eleni would walk out to get the food we had ordered, while Eva and I stayed at Fiona's. Fiona had a small but good selection of interesting but not easy avant-garde jazz and classical music. Eva and I did not listen to this. One evening we had huge amounts of pungent leftover food, but Tim did not want to take it on the underground with him for fear, he said, of stinking up the tube car. In consequence, I dumped and rinsed each plastic container and took them out to the recycling bin. It was cool and rainy outside. Wind blew through trees that had not yet lost all their leaves. The last time I lived in England, Margaret Thatcher was prime minister and the Yorkshire Ripper was in the news. I took the tube to school. I had friends and we ran around London together in the afternoons. I remember once going to Billingsgate Fish Market with my father and stepmother and taking a live eel home in a plastic bag filled with water. We ate that eel for dinner and so its molecules became ours. I have had many dreams in which I was underwater and understood that even in the dream it would be impossible to breathe. The dreams, not quite as serious, though, the, though there are several of them, have been about this understanding, this understanding that I will not be able to breathe when I am dead. Tim's eldest daughter, Koto, was sick, so we didn't see her during our visit. Tim and Chiaki's daughter was also ailing but recovered, and we saw her our last morning at the Gagosian Britannia Gallery, where we went to take a look at a James Terrell show. The main piece in the show was a cave of shifting light into which we stepped without our shoes. The cave seemed to have no ending even when we walked right up to it. The gallery we had stepped out of looked like a photograph when seen from inside the cave. Yuki was very young, and her eyes gleamed as the light shifted from violet to pink. I tried to think of how a novel could do that, what the light was doing in that curvy space, but couldn't. Novels are like huge, inefficient engines. It would have been very hard for a giraffe to enter the cave. Eleni and Eva had been to a Terrell, had been to Terrell's volcano, the famous Roden Crater, where Eleni had participated in a poetry reading, so we discussed that a bit. This and that, we said. Our ga a gallery employee very pleasantly hurried us along. After the show, we had pizza in a restaurant opposite the British Library, which stands next to St. Pancras Station. Eva had a child's, child's menu, which pleased her greatly, even though not all of it came when it was supposed to. Before we went to the station, which was crowded but calm, we stopped in the library and saw the permanent exhibit of manuscripts and listened to a recording of Virginia Woolf reading from Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway is my favorite novel by Virginia Woolf. I like it better than almost anything. We said goodbye to Tim and Chiaki and Yuki, who may by this time have fallen asleep in her stroller in the entrance to St. Pancras and made our way back to Paris. This did not keep me two days earlier from getting up while Eva and Eleni were still asleep and taking the tube to Liverpool Street Station where I purchased a ticket for the 8 a.m. train to Norwich in East Anglia, nor from taking a taxi once I had arrived in Norwich 
after a train ride spent constructing a review of the New Direction's re-release of Sir Thomas Brown's urn burial, to the village of Framingham Earl, and more specifically the churchyard attached to St. Andrews, a 13th century structure where I paid my respects at the grave of the German writer W.G. Zabold, who died in 2001. It was a cool but sunny morning. The churchyard was deserted. It took about five minutes to find Zabold's grave. My predecessors had lined up pebbles on the top of the thin rectangle of slate onto which his name had been carved. A vase of flowers sat at its base. The churchyard was very pretty. Birds sang. Branches moved in the breeze. The ground was spongy. I took photos of the grave. Later, trying to find a bus stop, I asked a woman, walking her small dog, how to get to Framingham Earl. She scrunched up her face and told me that I was in Framingham Earl. I asked her where then I could find pouring. She told me I was practically there too, that it was all, including Framingham Pigot, more or less the same place, even though each place, of course, was different. I walked on. I took a double-decker bus out of the towns of Framingham Earl, Framingham Pigot, and Pouring, which Zabold would have known well since he lived in their environs for 25 years and where he died in a car crash, apparently following a cardiac arrest and back into Norwich, which he would have also known well, where I spent the remainder of the morning and early afternoon walking the streets. I was not at all unaware as I walked that all of Zabold's books feature walkers of one stripe or another, nor was I uncognizant of his frequent allusions to ghosts, double and full, doubles and full-fledged doppelgangers, and as I walked, I kept a, look, kept a lookout for deceptively dour-faced, robustly mustached, bespeckled men of a certain age, also out walking the thoroughfares and noticing the cracks in the streets, which for all they knew and perhaps because of it might give on to bottomless chasms, and saw not a few of them. I just saw another one, standing outside the Boulder coffee shop where I sit typing this. They are everywhere, even though Zabald is dead and will continue to be, just as Sir Thomas Brown whose statue presides over Hay Hill in the center of Norwich and whose remains lie beneath the stone floor in the nearby St. Peter Mancroft Church, which in turn sits very near Brown's long-since-demolished 17th-century lodgings, is dead and will continue to be. There are other memorials to Brown on Hay Hill. These include a sculpture of a giant brain and seating areas inscribed with some of his most famous titles. A pair of Spanish-speaking visitors had their picture taken next to the brain while I stood there. I took a picture of the brain, too. Before I left Norwich, I had lunch in a Thai restaurant. The food was quite good, but the portions a bit small. Something I thought of more often than I might have liked in the coming days in London and following, our return to Paris where our time was coming to an end, and where in the final weeks before our return to Boulder, I was happy to make myself available to help publicize the French edition of my third novel, The Exquisite, a book that owes a significant, if curiously configured, debt to Zabold, a fact I address in my novels afterwards, afterward, which I understand both serves to clarify and confuse. My giraffe story went nowhere. Where do stories go? At one point, when I was taking pictures of Zabold's grave, I found myself lying on my side on the ground that covers his coffin. I leapt up and brushed off my pants. Everyone knows the dead can break loose that they can come for us whenever they like. Still, it may or may not be because Ginger was so clearly not going to get up and lark about, though one wonders if the dreams of people who have seen him would put the lie to this, that Eva broke into dance in the main lobby at the base of the curling staircase in the British Museum, 
soon after we had looked into Ginger's glass enclosure. There was something vaguely Egyptian in her dance, also something kind of kung fu. There is more to be said about all this, but of course, it won't be said. World, you visited me every day. World, I kept wondering about you. Thank you for listening. That was, that was great. I'm even shorter than Ben. Oh, okay. How does a blind girl learn to strut? Eleni Sicilianos asks in the California poem. One might respond that she need only listen to the words, the rhythm of the page that Eleni has through eight books spanning an array of styles and content so masterfully penned. When I was asked to do this introduction, I had the opportunity via our wonderful special collections in the library here on campus to explore two decades of Eleni's work and see the immense range of writing she is capable of. One of the products of such a thorough examination of a person's oeuvre is a sort of feeling of kinship with that person, so I'm uniquely honored to be introducing her today. Eleni's most recent book, The Loving Detail of the Living and, and the Dead, is forthcoming from Coffeehouse Press this April, but we do have copies here available today and only here as well as a range of other things. Um, her latest book, Body Clock, published in 2008, dives into the nature of time and space, how we exist as a part of these apostrophes. The main narrative follows the course of her pregnancy and birth of her daughter, evaluating along the way the materialist nature of these abstract concepts, giving them form through language and personal drawings she intersperses throughout the text. In 2004, Eleni released two collections, an intimate memoir in the Book of John and a vast epic, an extended narrative of place in the California poem. Though different in subject matter and scope, both texts use elements of collage to weave a stunning tapestry of its focal point. In the Book of John, we get an achingly honest portrait of a father sewn lyrically together with poetry and prose and image. Meanwhile, the California poem, reminiscent of a Homeric Odyssey, an ecological field guide, and a personal narrative delineates the space between internal and external and encapsulates an entire state, which is at once a single place and all places. The 2002 winner of the National Poetry Series, The Monster Lives of Boys and Girls, has been described as a long, sensuous exhalation of poetic generosity, exploring dreams, mythology, anatomy, the animal, and the energies that drive them all. A year earlier, Earliest Worlds, containing both Blue Guide and Of Sun of History of Scene, is said to cover more ground than some careers and its cross-disciplinary approach to poetics. It speaks of light, the cosmos, phenomenology, the individual mind, and the other. Though considered her debut text prior to Earliest Worlds, she has three more titles to her name, To Speak While Dreaming, The Book of Tendance, and my personal favorite, The Lover's Numbers all of which can be described as sensual, bodily, both domestic and animalistic, primal, sometimes violent, sometimes visceral, sometimes calm and quiet, but always pretty and always sharp. Eleni writes with an attention to the ecology of words and the ecology of living. 
In her books, she makes sense of chaos, the text being perhaps an entropic process of discovery, enlightenment, and empathy to our internal and external ecosystems alike. Her poetry itself can be described as its own ecosystem of knowledge, of feeling, of experience, of life on its most intimate and fundamental levels, as well as on its most grandiose and inclusive. She writes with the continuity between what we are, what we are a part of, and the poetry of existing. Proclaiming a love of the French and their obsession with the white page, she makes careful use of the page herself, paying close attention to the visual aesthetics of text and image on a surface. She is also sharply attuned to the sonic and rhythmic aesthetics of language, and having a background in biology and a general interest in the sciences, she draws from myriad disciplines to craft a boundless poetic that so poignantly communicates, essentially, the entirety of being. Eleni Sicilianos is the great-granddaughter of Nobel Prize in Literature nominee, the Greek poet Angela Sicilianos. A California native, longtime New York resident, she now resides in Boulder, Colorado as the director of creative writing at the University of Denver with her daughter and husband, who you just heard from. She received her MFA from Naropa University, is the recipient of numerous awards, fellowships, and residencies, and has work featured in a variety of publications. So without further ado, please give a warm California welcome to Eleni Sicilianos. Thank you, person whose name I didn't learn. Yeah. <laughs> Hannah. Thanks, Hannah. That was fabulous. And thanks to Ben and all for making this happen and for being here. So I, when I, I just learned that you, some of you read the California poem this week, so I thought I'd open with that. Or, uh, yeah, the whole thing. I'm going to read the whole 189 pages. Just a little section. In California, we put crystal clear marbles in our ears so we can't hear the ricochet of neighbors fighting feet crunching through the underbrush, thumb harps, fiberglass padding being pulled back from drywall. In other hoods, they heard the jacuzzi cover sliding back, sound of plastic kissing itself off water, just as Agamemnon's shimmering mask, lying quiet in the secret sweaty chamber, slides back to reveal the thrill, the thrill of blacking out in the lackluster days. Can I sell you this room of unusual weather, this brain made for pleasure, these deluginous rains of diluvial California crashing cattywampus through the world? For anything less than storm-convergent sky-rocket flea-market rates, water spouts like one-dimensional phonographs spatting on the horizon will cost a lot. A dull roar falls on the little white houses stacked up in the trees. A maddened brain made it in the palatial, stucco, horatial, algier places constructed in mud and bunch grass Chumash once loved. Earth's amorous edifices, pyramids, Transamerica, twin towers will no longer hold you now. Grab on to vagabondish space. 
we soon came to believe that the world had been made and we could make it no further. Listen, who's creating the world here, a Lenny or a possums? It's me against the animals in this, fishes against birds, vermin against the leeches of Zaka Lake. Who is of more use on the face of the earth, a Lenny or a possums? Opossums have the ears of a ray of light, with no other delicious intentions. What position were we in, suffering when, when clearly intended to be having pleasure? All that troubled moisture in the brain making, thought is love, not, machine is love, not. Can I borrow your watch, Mr. Hunt? I can do it. You can? Thank you. Okay. Is that enough California pool? <laughs> okay. Um, if we get bored of this book, I'll go back to that. Um, this is the first time I get to read from the loving detail of the living and the dead officially, so it's kind of exciting. Um, and this is, uh, well, I don't know, maybe I won't say anything about it. You can ask me all questions, and I'll try to answer them. Charlene. Everyone is the weather of our home star. Enclose the future in your liver with the audacity of a jewel trap, the future where there's nothing left. Charlene, your hair was a tall girl, big girl, blonde as cigarette smoke. You had a boat by the river, little boat tied to the banks, a wooden ship of luxury because freedom is you could float away, come home, float away, come home, without the weight of your own actions ripping the organs out of your body. Charlene, the body holds the vowels like a baby arming the O. Sideways, you, the future shape of the liver. Blue, you, liver, Y, you, Charlene. Kidneys, emerald, light blue, Charlene. Eat your bowl of money. Um, there are sometimes just single-line poems throughout this or, or sections from other poems taken out throughout the book, so sometimes I'll read some of those. It might be hard to tell the difference between those and a title, but that's just the mystery of poetry. <laughs> Someone photographs the hands trembling in black air. Skin on a dime. Charlene puts skin on a dime, leather on a dollar, food on her face, money on the table. Charlene, I'm a homemade monster and you're a homemade oyster. Your circle has a poppy hole.
Then a cloud creaks in the wind or is popped with a silver needle. An end and thought. I found an end and thought, what if this were America, this room? I found an if, and if it were France, let us go on cultivating these fields of error. Found a so, and so I found myself in Colorado, in a havoc of bees, fallen and frozen. I found a what, and what to do with it. I found a two, and pointed it, but did not pull the trigger. I found an oar, an ear, I couldn't hear which. Who took my knot, and sentenced it to palinodes and corners of the womb? To live, live lively, a dog licking stars. I found an in and on and as and knotted them together. To live, live wounded as one who fell in the morning and hurt her knee. I fondled the the I found and the uh. A beautiful, painful grammar walks through my brain. What if it were the rifle in the human blind? The foot soon forgets its path through the soft heather. Blackout fabric, what I found there. You may have read about this. They made the blackest fabric, the darkest fabric ever made about two years ago. And then this year, uh, there's been a lot of writing about the, the most reflective um, element on the planet, which is a little berry found in Africa. Blackout fabric, what I found there. They had long dreamed of an ideal black that absorbs all colors while reflecting no light. In the light, my fact unfurled. Can you see a difference, a dar darker difference between this black and that? The darkest fabric ever found was found to be made by man. Upon that carpet I found a patch of nanotube, a carbon nanotube grass, a loosely packed forest full of nanoscale gaps and holes to collect and trap light. Tried a picnic upon that scrap, but soon discovered how random are the surfaces. My tincture thought it was a bird. My Golgi got all confused. What do Golgi do? Sent the macromolecule package to the wrong parts. What hinterlands a hand can grip? My eukaryotes cried so dusky. My coinciding eye set out seeking its companionship, but came back black. My corresponding ribonucleic haze lazing around the dark nucleotides. Passing through its lumens, my Mars mistook itself for sky. My clouds retrieved themselves from black, a good nut of a nucleus decoupling the cytoskeleton. My two bullets flew by night, life to life debt to debt, all tries to undo its ties, all rise.
a twist in the basement membrane membranes and their gut-like helices. My tooth at the hardened crumb, just so. The cell or the will kills the beam, 99.955%. My empire lists its genomic odes, my hedgerow escrowed, my blood released its weathermen. A corpse was found. The story asked, what is this stinking history? Another girl is murdered. My wind did wind around her bones. Sunlight laces straight her ribs. My bomb illuminating my hand and bird. Another war unfolded. My beast head asleep on the rock. My human legs in yellow light. My fact decayed in the light. Is this going in and out or? Yeah, no, maybe? A little bit, yeah. Should I just, um, is something going on over there? No, it's not? Okay. I think it sounds like it's straight on, but it's, oh, it sounds okay. pretty good. I don't know. Does it? It's okay? Yeah. Okay. Let me turn it up a little. There we go. All right. Then we can't go around. Okay. Thanks. When it says, fragile above a body, sleeping in the doorway. Okay, since Laird read a giraffe story, sort of. <laughs> yeah. What the heck was that? Uh, I'm going to read a giraffe zoo story. Called, ooh, whoa, that's the giraffe. I think it came back to life. There we go. <laughs> Try that. Thanks. Uh, Shadow Zoo. So just a little bit longer. About the bars of light across the trees. About the shadows blocking each trunk and a geometric stage for more shadow play about the depth the eye perceives through the limbs when my shadow touched itself, torched it. Where was your shadow? The deer wearing theirs across the hillside, the wasps crashing through the windows, sun drunk, stormy blobs shadowing the pain. The past was a shadow running backwards, wearing itself in a cloak we couldn't see. The future seen in the deer trimming the grass, then wearing their shadows down to nubs. A river shadows this room, backside of the specific electricity surging through the house. For the blind man who gained sight, everything was flat. He had to learn to see the shadow fruit, the seemingly tasteless shadow fruit, giving everything depth. Throw your shadow on the cave wall, then charcoal in the horse's throat. You can make a man ill by stabbing it. And wouldn't his eyes be filled with darkness? He thought in the light there'd be no more shadow. He stepped there. And wouldn't his eyes hurt? And wouldn't he turn and flee by the rough, steep path if someone dragged you into sunlight? 
the cracked atom, its shadow like a mosquito hovering over the lawn. The silos hugging spent fuel cast theirs on the ground. Who will hold fast? Who will strike? Who will wound? Will sound your shadow? If your shadow falls on the stone and the demon of the stone draws it. At noon, you may lose your shadow. If a hyena steps on it in moonlight, a dog on a roof can be dragged by its echo as if by rope. The Minuteman missile is maintained on alert in an unnamed, hardened, underground launch facility approximately 80 feet deep, 12 feet in diameter, and covered by a 100-ton blast door which is blown off prior to missile launch. You are the shadow at the back, looming like a trace. Bury a woman's shadow under the foundation stone or find the first animal that comes along. Beware the shadow trader who deals the shadow the builder needs. These are the things that detain the soul in the mind. Shadows, flames, trees, columns, dolls, pools, children, Polaroids, carbon, waste. Bluff and counterbluff thrown across the ocean streak their shadows, sea bottom, and if your shadow lit up, if your shadow lit, lit up, if your shadow were a flame, the tip of the matchstick burning the body back to its shadow, the mind holding it there. She wears a wedge of shadow like a pendant on a chain dangling in the shadowy triangle above the heart. To the right, if you are facing her. To the left, if you are her. He said, first shadows, then reflections in water, and in all close-packed, smooth, and shiny materials, and everything of that sort, if you understand. Of the visible, put the originals of these images, namely the animals around us, all the plants and the whole class of manufactured things. He answered, consider them put. Add my shadow. It happens in black and white and earth's umbra derelicted across the moon. What I learned in this town today a giraffe's extra big heart keeps it from passing out once it lifts its big face on its long neck back up from the grass that hides its shadows at the root. Unstitch my shadow, shadow giraffe, I stitch it back. Unstitch my purpose, stitching, trimming, which is to walk upon the grass and walk upon the shadow grass. Dream event, my husband and the devil. <laughs> Forgot to tell you about that. <laughs> 
Now I know that this is a prose poem. Now I know that was the devil or one of his minions scuttling up and down his ropes like a gleefully malignant, worn-out spider. Black stockings with naughty mendings, black pointed hat flopping down, pointy buckled shoes. Everything on that devil was spiky, chin, hat, eyes, toes. Why did he have you tied to the top of the clock tower like a chastised fly in danger? I had to find the missing element to save you. I believe it was a piece of time, a little knob or rope of it, a bit of illuminating temporal genetic code. Once I got up there to you and fit the missing string of time in, it would light up, multicolored, like an enormous light bright. But I couldn't distract the devil long enough before I woke. Why were you, your you-soul? Why was my self-soul? Why were we being held captive by a time devil dressed in black like an ancient undertaker? The only way to free ourselves was illumination, light, and color, so please draw this clarified sky for me. Yeah, that's the poem. Let's see. <laughs> Verbatim, I think you taught me that. Fingers glitter with some animal time had wounded. And I think I'll just end with the last poem in the book. Survey Phototropes. The snow falls, picks itself up, dusts itself off, a sparrow flying like a leaf back up to its tree. The future does a backbend toward you, it's what you can almost see, scrimmed in the clouds that crowd the sky, elbowing, laughing. After that I see space and its influence in a bucket of spinning water, and two calcium atoms shoot forth twinned photons traveling back to back, arms unlaced, perfect swimmers in the lit dusk. Where are they going? First to Holland, then to calcium kiss her bones. And in Holland the streets are made of water, the dolls and dogs gather around lit picnic tables like happy rags. The body is in the root cellar. When snow falls, our dead gather close to our bones because the cold's ghost has come back to haunt the cold and the body, too, is a happy rag. Tree, take a photograph of her thought. You can do it with photosynthesis. Silhouettes of seals appear, a swarmed planet and its satellites, a celestial atlas that breaks when tapped its glass. Some giraffes, some elephants, a lion scatter in the clearing. In the clearing, the leaves of the world turn toward the light, as do the letters of the word. The words are beautiful, not for their accuracy, but for their dream. 
Words are arrows that loop between no man's land and the wetlands, soft flints flying toward their target. Words bird the zone. When home was adopted as mother, area was given here, a future of all surface, no border. just say that I was actually trying to resist making a book-length project because <laughs> I feel like especially in um, the world of poetry that I frequent, maybe it's the best verb, I don't know, that I, that I am involved in, we all tend to work on book, and I tend to work on book-length projects, and we've, I feel like there's, an, um, we become negligent about the discrete poem, and so I was just trying to um, I was trying to resist making a, a big project, but then I still couldn't resist having these little thematic things that kept coming through, like lines from the poem. And then there's this character, I didn't read more of her um, poems or voices, but Charlene does keep reappearing too. And there are, because a few people in my life died during this book, there are quite a few um, elegies. Hmm. Um, that's like everything in a nutshell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your, uh, thank you for both of you for this wonderful reading. I was, I was really interested in your homage to Sebald and, and even the kind of the use of the slides and so forth. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about your affection for Sebald. It was pretty, um, pretty early. Uh, I, we, were, we had just moved to New York. This was, I guess, the fall of 1996. And we're friends with... Um, then poet and junior editor at New Directions and now pretty well-known photographer Tim Davis um, who uh, we got friendly with and he handed me a copy of this book by this German writer who they thought was going to be this next exciting thing and it was um, The Emigrants by W.G. Zabel uh, and it had a pretty heavy impact on me and then we got to meet him um, at the Goethe Institute when he came through town um, and uh, I chatted with him for a little while and then had a little bit of a correspondence with him, um, which was sort of me writing him long, you know, you're my hero letters and him writing me polite responses back. Um, but he responded, and I still have these letters uh, from him. Uh, but it's, it's been, um, it's one of those things where uh, for, for a while it seemed like every other young, earnest writer was trying to do a Zabald. And so writing these texts that were truffled with photographs, not non-captioned, um, which was the way that he worked with them. Uh, and uh, for a long time, I, I resisted doing something. I wanted to metabolize, I think, the influence a little bit more. Um, and so even though this novel I mentioned, The Exquisite, takes on some of Zabald's motifs um, and concerns, especially from his, his book, The Rings of Saturn, um, it does so in the context of a sort of ghost noir story. Um, I felt like distanced enough. But now I've sort of come back around to 
um, using some of what I gleaned from his writings in my in my work, um, and not feeling bad about it anymore. I feel like I've come far enough away from that initial, you know, jaw sock to to be able to take it on a bit. Yeah, the proportion of fiction to nonfiction in that one. In this case, this is one of the ones where um, probably I'm not sure that there's anything in there that I, I someone could say that didn't happen. Um, they might say it didn't happen quite that way. Uh, but so in this case, it's and, and I have these witnesses here uh, to, to most of, of what went on. Um, but there are other pieces in the manuscript. So there are about um, a dozen of these pieces, and some of them are 90 percent invention and 10%, uh, maybe a little bit of a frame of the actual. But I'm really working between those poles. And so this one was, was sort of a travel log. I actually had a question. You referred to it as a travel log. What was the process of writing? I know at the end you kind of said, as I'm writing this in a cafe in Boulder, your kind of home base, were you writing it as you were traveling? Was it something which you were kind of trying to recreate the style mm. of? kind of being in the moment or were you writing it kind of in the moment and then yeah it, it was it was both um so it was being part of it was being written in the moment some of that stuff came from my failed giraffe story that i described writing um and then there were these these waves of editing as well and so the time period it, when i when i would revise i would have this new time stamp for the actual where i was um so it, it was a it was a real combination of things written on the ground from notebook entries and things from the, from that that trip, and then also conversations that would come up when we would talk about the trip. Um, and th those are the hardest things for me to write: is to be sort of faithful, and not go off into a Bruce Lee kung fu episode or something like that. It's a real good constraint. Um, I have a question, but Eva has a question first. Yeah. Um, do you think that it's the Oh. <laughs> I know you. Well, you probably couldn't see, but Papa had a lot of pictures that he was showing, and there were a lot of you, actually. No, I mean... The, the new book has pictures on the cover, um, and there's Proust, who is on his deathbed, which is kind of amazing. I These asked, are Eva's eyes. I asked about inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was going to go so to the inside, but the only pictures are made out of letters. No, there's one. Oh, there actually, is. There's yeah. one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Misrepresent. No, no. Um, there's actually there are two, oh, um, okay. and th that's the other thing because I've been using images a lot in the last few projects, and, and I'm working on one now that also has a lot of images. So I wanted to keep that minimal, and there's just I actually wanted this is Man Ray's photograph of Proust on his de deathbed, and I just wanted the eye, but Man Ray even in death, does not allow his images to be cropped. Mm -hmm. So there's a picture of that in the middle, and then just one picture of a list of, from www.findagrave.com, just a little list of mm -hmm. casualties. So just two. And what about your there are some. There are some pictures in it, yeah. yeah. And that's why I was doing the slideshow. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. The 
Oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad that you had that experience. Um, you know, I just, I wasn't thinking about it as a landscape so much. Well, I mean, obviously, the landscape was working on me, and that's how um, I think that that feeling is manifest. But I realized afterwards that I was working on this book about my father at the same time, which is a very little format. I mean, the reason that the California um, poem is so long, partly is that the lines were very long, and that was really important to me, to keep those. And the press was willing to do that. But I realized afterwards that I was working on a portrait and a landscape. Um, and the portrait book is portrait-sized, and then the landscape book has this, this sort of horizon line to it. Um, so I don't, I wasn't, I didn't set out to do that, but that's how it, it um, manifested itself. And, and I do tend to, and I don't know that I was thinking about it this way at the time, but I began to think, I mean, probably shortly afterward, it started to seem like an installation to me, so that um, you could wander into any room at any time, and that the images were part of that installation too. What is your each other's direct influence on each other's work. Mm. We've yeah. I, I guess we really made it look like it was just nothing but back and forth <laughs> the, the whole time. But mm -hmm. I, I sort of think of it as, um, for years, Eleni's been maybe the only person who reads my books before they go to the, the editor. That's, that's not 100% true, but that's... Um, so she's my early, first, most important reader, I'd say, and... So it's it's always that you know, and she's pretty tough about my my work, you know what what's what's functioning and what's not. So it's with great trepidation that I hand it over, but I do, and so that's always, you know, it has to. I have to get it to a certain point, um, and certainly then reading her manuscripts, which she's very frequently handing to me, <laughs> All the time. without quite so much trepidation apparently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Could you read this for the sixth time? What do you think of this line? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've changed three words in the book. Could you read the whole thing and make sure that they're that kind of. Yeah, so there's a lot of reading back and forth, um, which I think has been really useful to me. Um, and I guess also, Laird is a fiction writer who's influenced by poetry, and I'm a poet who's influenced by fiction, so that has been, and I think that would be the case anyway, but it's probably strengthened that, the fact that we have lived together so long. Mm -hmm. And we, we first met because, or... Oh, I guess maybe we had met before that, but the first time I ever really approached Eleni, it was with her first book in my jacket pocket, which I pulled out and asked her to sign, and this made quite an impression. And said that they carried it everywhere. Which was true. <laughs> it wasn't just a tactic. Yeah. yeah, but I think all we do sometimes discover after the fact that we've been working on similar themes that you wouldn't necessarily... Well, actually... Laird was working on a book called Indiana, Indiana while I was working on the California poem. So we were both doing projects of place. One was a novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's true. There was That's a true. question back there, I thought. Did somebody else raise their hand? We're just trying to get more questions yeah. out of you <laughs> before we... I actually, I wanted to ask you about, um, I guess the use of... I had never heard that story before, that was the, and I haven't heard any of those. He's been reading them, but we don't usually get to go to readings together or to each other's readings. Um, I guess I was thinking about your how you feel about hyperrealism and um, sort of contemporary detail and then how you're using so much very specific detail 
in those. And mm. I don't know if you could speak to that a little bit. Do you mean the the sort of maximalist type fiction? Um, David Foster Wallace and James Wood called it referred to hysterical realism in a kind of pejorative review of a Zadie Smith novel called White White Teeth some years ago. I've always been really um, resist, resistant to it, and my, my paradigm has always been much more been minimalist. I, my first published work was haiku, um, and I have slowly built from there. So it's really it really pushes it to the limits of my capacity to have these sort of longer sentences that that have things in them at all. Um, but generally speaking, if I refer to um, the ephemera of the day, the paraphernalia of the day, the stuff that makes up our daily um, world, as, as I perceive it, it's, it's seen through the filter of memory. Um, so I'm not very likely to talk about what's for sale at the 7-Eleven unless it was the 7-Eleven in 1978 or whatever, I, so, so that I see it through that optic of memory, through the tunnel of memory. Um, it takes a while, and I use that word metabolize, and maybe it's about that metabolizing these details. Um, whereas writers who I, I enjoy and, and respect, someone like George Saunders, for example, I was thinking about when we were going through the zoo today, that if it was George Saunders sort of thinking about it, it would be a kind of antic, manic, comical, crazy experience pointing up the weirdnesses of, of America, which, which I think is, is great, but it's not how I've ever, ever worked. Um, and... But it, but it really has been you know, sort of, it's hard fought for me to have details at all, so I'm glad that it seemed like there was a detail or two. Um, and then I had one question for you, um, which was about Charlene yeah. and this idea of having a character um, to a certain extent or how you think about this character who re recurs, as you heard, throughout the, um, throughout the book. So I wonder if you could tell us about Charlene. Mm -hmm. um, we actually just had a conversation about this because I think... I often say that I think sometimes we become poets because you can deflect everything. <laughs> the line break, that little suspension at the end of the line break, you have to change direction quickly. Um, and that little sort of silence. Um, Agamben asks, what happens at the end of the poem? Is it you know, the, big, the big fall, the big silence? But, um, but it's, so it's it's easy to be indirect, or that's what we do all the time. Even the most direct poems in some way always have the indirection of the, of the line break. Um, and there, but at the same time, there's this, yeah, there's this curious fear of, inha I don't know, inhabiting a character of so-called artifice. Um, there's always some reflect, the, the self always comes back, even if we're trying to evacuate it. Um, whereas fiction writers seem really comfortable just inhabiting some other person and head, and I'm not afraid of, of the gap between the writer and the character. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if I could really create a whole book with just this character speaking. Um, as often happens for me, she appeared in a dream, um, and it wasn't the person I knew, but I knew a person named Charlene uh, when I was in fifth grade. She was my best friend. And about two weeks later, or maybe a month after I started writing poems with this character, um, Charlene contacted me after probably 35 years or something. <laughs> so um, then I thought, oh my god, what am I going to do about these poems? Um, but I just let her still continue. She, you know, 
I did give her a few attributes of, of the contemporary Charlene. She has, they both have chickens. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Can I just ask, uh, the dream thing, uh, which is a, um, the subconscious, however you, you situate it, some of the writers that uh, I would think you were, maybe were mentors to you, uh, think about Bernadette Meyer, mm -hmm. or, um, yeah. who also seems to be a very active <laughs> dreamer, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. As somebody who doesn't know their dreams or, or seem to have that kind of sleep, uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in if there's kind of a tradition of dreaming poets that you mm -hmm. sort of place yourself in, or but Alice Notley and Bernadette Mayer yeah, both for sure, those two, those two yeah. Um, and you know, it's one of those things because like there's nothing more boring than having somebody tell you their dream usually, but. But my father was also a very, very active dreamer, and always would sp I would hear like an hour-long dream, or he would call me at like three in the morning to tell me a dream. Um, so it was all it was something I, I read the book of John if you haven't had a chance. It's about <laughs> or just this guy. Read him. Um, so yeah, I guess it's always and my whole family is like that. My siblings are like that too. Very active dream lives that are frequently shared. And actually, Graham Faust just told me that he, in his family, considered rude to tell anyone your dream. Mm. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, I've been dissing people my whole life. Um, but yeah, I don't, it's, it's just something that is really vital to my understanding. Of, it's also for me where narrative arises. Mostly it doesn't arise in daily life as it does for Laird. Um, but Actually, since Eva's been around, it's, I almost never remember my dreams. So I ha I'm having to figure out a new uh, deep root. Hmm. And I don't know, you mentioned Bernadette Mayer, and she was a huge early influence on me as well. Um, in particular, her text, Memory, which is an out-of-print uh, but amazing project where she took X number of photographs for a certain amount of time and then wrote looking at these photographs. Uh, and maybe that speaks to that, that earlier uh, question about uh, that you asked about hysterical realism and, and my, my thinking about it in terms of memory. Because even though she was looking at things that were fairly close to her, events in her life, and she, she really um, um, talks about the sort of little microparticles of the day in that text, it comes at a slight remove. She is remembering them. Um, there is this gapping that happens that I find really interesting, that space. And so it's just, it's intriguing that you mentioned Bernadette because I, that's a better way to talk about it, I think, is to think about mm -hmm. her work yeah, for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you all. There's lots of books. I hope that you spend lots of money on That was a I don't know about this thing. <laughs> it's spotty. <laughs>
So that, for next week, sort of fixed itself. or for the, uh, yeah, sucks the next reading, we yeah. should try to really get the venue changed. For next time, yeah. yeah. Could you hear anything back there? I mean, I was right up here, uh-huh. but uh, yeah, it sounded okay. But we could do we could do a lot better though. Yeah. Um, we can at least stabilize this somehow so it doesn't keep drooping. Well, I was thinking I'm not just I have like tons of amps and actual decent mics. Like I could at least bring a keyboard amp and stick it in the side, you know, and, and it would sound fine. Uh, it works so well. I mean, especially like thinking about burning <laughs> yeah. that too, which yeah. of course. But I, I didn't want to drag it over here. It's cool, but it's, 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 it's not very reliable. Yeah. The cord is like made out of like asbestos or something. I think like the cord might be. Totally. Wow, that's I think so. I think if we. Her archive is here actually. This cord is here. Yeah, that's right. Actually, we're going to. But the other one. Oh, you going? Oh, good. I was thinking, like, I really hope that you guys. So maybe that would extend the today. Do you know Rob Melton? No. Maybe we can contact. I can send him an email tonight. Oh, maybe, actually, maybe that's who we need to contact with. Because Michael is the one who. Okay, yeah. well, I think so. He's very generous. You know, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if he's thrilled. Everything's good cool. up to here. Because it was the only thing that was seen to be going on. Okay. That's thanks. Yeah, it was As a total seaball addict, it's a great to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is all awesome. I think, um, well, whatever, we'll deal with this in a minute. What do you want me to do with well, this? Well, the thing that's go? cool is it sort of all goes in here. Or actually, it all goes in here. Is there like a hollowed out background? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it uses batteries. Maybe that was the problem. Uh, so is this going to go back into your office for now? Or? Okay, we're going to bring it up there. Okay. Yeah. So that comes out. I think the cord winds up. We could put, like, well, this is really long. If we ever use this again, we could put this, like, way in the back. Yeah, <laughs> like, just straight back. So, so people in the back get to... Or even in a corner. Yeah, that was great. Thanks. Yeah, that was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Pork belly sounds like a pretty good Hey, good, how are you?